Okay, so let me start out, because it's not going to sound like it in a few minutes. Let me start out by saying this, disclaimer. I feel very blessed, very blessed to have been born in and to live in the United States. I personally believe, just my opinion, it's the greatest country and best country in the history of the world. I would not want to live in any other country on earth. Those of you who are from other countries, no diss on you or anything. It's just, I, wouldn't, I can't think of another country I'd want to live in. Okay? Having said that, the United States is not perfect. It was created by and is run by fallen people. And if you doubt that, just watch the news for five minutes. Um, so, having said that, we want to go back uh, to the event that... Uh, spawned the creation of the United States, uh, which is the American Revolution. And um, the, this session is entitled The Pulpit in the American Revolution. And the, the slide title you can see up here is Sermons in the American Revolution, because that's, of course, where the pulpit really mattered. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. At critical points in American history, preachers have played an important role. Um, Some of you know about the role of preachers as abolitionists during the Civil War period. Um, Probably not as many of you know about the role of preachers in the social gospel movement in the early 1900s. Unfortunately, that was mostly bad, but nonetheless, they were influential. Um, Some of you know about the role of preachers in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. And some of you know about the role of preachers during the Vietnam protest era and so on and so forth. So at various junctures in American history, preachers have played a significant role. Um, One of those times is for the, the American Revolution, in which preachers played a significant role. Some of you may have heard from, especially from sort of uh, self-branded popular historians, you may have heard about the so-called black-robed regiment uh, during the American Revolution, uh, referring to the ministers who wore black robes at the time, and that they were essentially a regiment uh, in, in favor of the American Revolution because they promoted the American Revolution and recruited soldiers for the American cause. That is a fact. The Black Robe Regiment is a fact. They did. There were a lot of preachers who, who did that. And uh, we're going to be seeing today some of what they said in promoting the American Revolution and whatnot. In fact, what we're going to be looking at is um, the Patriot sermons versus the, the Loyalist sermons. The Loyalists are those who remained loyal to England rather than uh, supporting the American Revolution. And we're going to look at the Patriot preachers versus the Loyalist preachers and so on. So the, the question then is, um, and again, there are popular self-deemed historians who argue that because there was this Black Road Regiment and because preachers promoted the American Revolution, that for, therefore makes it a godly event. Uh, so that's one question. Does, does the fact that preachers promoted the revolution make it a godly event? Does that mean that God approved of the revolution? Uh, Or did God use what Calvin calls the instrumentality of the wicked to produce a positive result from man's sinfulness? So those are kind of two sides of the argument that we're going to be looking at. So this seminar is a study and comparison of the sermons and the messages of the patriot and loyalist preachers. We'll look at the hermeneutics employed by each side. 
We'll look at how each of them used the Bible. We'll look at their basic messages. And the plan is to end with why it matters now, uh, the so what question, which um, as an academic, that always comes down to the bottom line. So what? Um, my desire is for you to see, for the most part, what they themselves said, which is why I'm, it's, this whole thing is going to be PowerPoint so you can see it. And you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, you can look it up, whatever, uh, so that you don't have to take my word for it. I apologize in advance that we're going to move very quickly because I have a lot of material here, and I want to leave, leave time for questions and then for you to have some fellowship, whatever, before um, the service. So, having said that, uh, keep hands and arms inside the right at all times, uh, and we will get going. So we're talking about sermons of the American Revolution, patriot versus loyalist. Uh, the, the so-called patriots were those who supported the American Revolution, Uh, And the loyalists were those who remained loyal to England uh, during the American Revolution and opposed the revolution. Now, let's take a look first at 18th 18th century American churches. Okay? Uh, In the 18th century, you can see the numbers here. 660 to 800 congregational, 500 plus Presbyterian, 470 plus Baptist. You can see the numbers. The key to it is those first two categories, so the vast uh, bulk of the churches in 18th century America were Reformed or Calvinist in their root, okay, and that's important. It's considered important by both sides of this argument, okay, um, so it, but it, it's, a, it's a fact and it's an important fact. New England... The hotbed of the American Revolution was almost entirely Reformed and Calvinist. And that's important in this whole discussion. But this was a major problem for the revolutionary cause. The fact that these churches were Reformed and Calvinist was a significant problem that they had to get over, as we'll see. All right, why is that? Calvinism was the main theological obstacle to democratic theory. If you look at the elements of Calvinism, let's take, you take the tulip, for example. All of these things are very anti-democratic. Total depravity, uh, d- democracy says that man is basically good, and therefore if you just put a bunch of them together, majority opinion is, is, is the good thing. Unconditional election says that some people are chosen and other people are not. That's anti-democratic. Limited atonement, Christ only died for some people, not for everybody. That's anti-democratic. Irresistible grace, there's nothing you can do about it. That's anti-democratic. And perseverance of the saints, eh, that might not be anti-democratic, but it might be. But anyway, these are anti-democratic things. And as a, a commentator, a preacher of the day said... Calvinism is antithetical to democratic common sense. Now, a couple of things you should note there. Well, the one thing you should note there is the emphasis on common sense, because you're going to see a lot of that coming along. Um, so Calvinism was largely rejected or changed during this time. A number of people abandoned Calvinism, and those who didn't sought to change it because it violated the spirit of liberty. Um, And 
You're going to see yellow stuff on here. That's important. The white stuff isn't. No, it's all important. But the yellow stuff, I want you to particularly pay attention to um, and emphasize. Here's what one historian has said. Whigs and Calvinists spoke overlapping but different languages. Whigs meaning um, those who supported the revolution. Spoke overlapping but different languages that enabled them to cooperate. But it was the clergy who had learned the most from the collaboration by politicizing the gospel to suit the revolutionary cause. That's what his claim is, and we're going to see whether that's true or not along the way. Now, to begin with, we need to look at the education of the ministers. The popularizing historians who say that uh, the fact that preachers supported the revolution makes it a godly event and that God supported it and so on and so forth, um, they don't pay any attention to what these preachers believed and what they taught. It's just the fact that preachers supported it makes it okay. And we know that today, right? Whatever preachers support, God's behind it. Well, not necessarily. It depends on what that preacher believes and what that preacher teaches, right? So it's important to get at that. We start with the education of the ministers. The patriot preachers, those who supported the American cause, remember patriot all the way through here is those who support the revolution. The patriot preachers mostly were educated at Harvard and Yale. Now, here's where we get... Another problem in in looking at this whole thing when you're dealing with popularizing historians as opposed to real historians, Um, there's this romantic notion about uh, the Puritans and the New England communities and so forth, uh, that this was a godly society that was in pursuit of God's will, and uh, they offered freedom of religion, and so on and so forth. And some of that is true for about 20 years but by 1700, the Puritan community is entirely, diff- is entirely different, and the Puritan commonwealth, as we think of it, is gone. By 1700, the Puritans are slave traders. The Puritans are producing rum to trade. Uh, it's entirely different. Harvard, you'll, some will want to tell you, and it's true, Harvard was created as the first university in America in order to train pastors, to train ministers. And that's true. And in the start, it was, it was fine. But it didn't take very long before Harvard went down the tubes. Yale, most people don't know, one of the main reasons Yale was, in, was uh, started was because of complaints from congregations about the ministers they were getting from Harvard. And so Yale was started, and within 20 years, Yale went down the tubes. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, and let's also note, most of the Patriot preachers then went to Harvard or Yale. Most of the Loyalist ministers didn't go to university at all. And those who did mostly went to English universities. Okay, so there's a difference in educational background. And off the top, you would want to say, well, the Patriot preachers are better because they went to university. Well, you'll, we'll decide. So what about the quality of Harvard and Yale at this time? According to George Whitfield, someone asked me right before this session if there were any really good, solid preachers back then, people like John MacArthur and Jonathan Edwards and whatnot, and I said, yes, George Whitfield. So George Whitfield is a guy that's on board with you and me. George Whitfield could preach from this pulpit. Um, he was a dynamic preacher, etc. 
So what did he say about Harvard and Yale? He said, as for the universities, their light has become darkness. He, he spoke at Harvard and face-to-face accused the Harvard professors of corrupting the word of God. I want to meet that guy in heaven, by the way. Harvard had a Satan's bookshelf, as it was called, of rationalist authors, which was an essential part of Harvard's intellectual life. This is where all of the hot top students uh, spent their time in the library, in the Satan's bookshelf. The Satan's bookshelf wasn't actually Satan, it was rationalists. It was Enlightenment thought rationalist authors, which were all the rage. Um, I could go into this for a long time, so I'm, I'm really restraining myself. Um, Yale was begun, as I said, largely because of complaints regarding Harvard grads. Yale professors emphasize rationalist philosophers and natural religion. Natural religion is what is one branch of natural religion is deism. You may have heard of deism. There were virt- Let me just say this. There were virtually no deists among the American founding fathers. Okay, you have to go down pretty low on the list. You have to get down in the 60s or 70s of founding fathers to find one deist. Um, that doesn't mean they were Christians, however. That's another seminar that got cut because of the... But anyway. Um, so they emphasize rationalist philosophers and natural religion. Natural religion, by the way, teaches that all we can know about God is what nature tells us. There's no written revelation What we know about God is what nature tells us, and basically science. Science is how you learn about God. And on these campuses, as one of the um, ministers of the day said, who didn't approve of them, said it became smart. Actually, wait, this was said by the uh, president of Yale. It became smart to be called the name of some infidel. Uh, that, That became like a hot thing on campus. Uh, to be associated with some infidel, that is, someone who completely rejects Christianity. Arianism, Socinianism, Pelagianism, Deism abounded in Harvard and Yale. Arianism says that Jesus is not God. He was a, a specially created being, something between God and man. Socinianism says Jesus was not God. He was just a man, a really good man, but just a man. Uh, Pelagianism, you already know about. Deism, we don't have time to mess with. So these are bad things. Let's just put it that way. Pelagianism basically means that you pick God, he doesn't pick you kind of thing. All right. So what's the result of this then? Whitfield complained about unconverted ministers. He said, the generality of preachers talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ. Gilbert Tennant Another staunch uh, believer, preacher, said the greatest part of the ministers of New England are carnal, unconverted men. James Davenport, another good, solid preacher, said most of the ministers of the town are, of Boston and the country are unconverted and are leading their people blindfold to hell. That's pretty stark. Um, so this is what the preaching that came out of Harvard and Yale consisted of is men who fundamentally didn't believe the gospel and were teaching rationalism, etc. Let's look at hermeneutics. And Todd Friel would say, Herman who? Um, Hermeneutics, which is basically um, the method by which you interpret the Bible. 
What's your process? What's your method for interpreting the Bible? Uh, For the patriot preachers, it was very simple. And this is the way Charles Turner expressed it. Explaining the scriptures in a manner friendly to the cause of freedom. That was their hermeneutic. When they looked through the Bible, they looked for some way to connect it to freedom and to explain whatever they found there as friendly to the cause of freedom. Nathaniel Niles, uh, one of the prominent patriot preachers, said, No man can be a Christian and not a friend to civil liberty. Uh, I don't remember that in the gospel in Galatians, but apparently it's there somewhere. So this is the hermeneutics of the patriot preachers. Whatever promotes liberty, whatever promotes freedom, that's the way Scripture should be interpreted. And we're going to see some of that in a minute. The Loyalist preachers had a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture, which our seminary prof over here can tell you is that of Grace Community Church. This is Dr. MacArthur's hermeneutic, literal, historical, grammatical. Um, That is, you take the Scripture literally in the original language, in its historical context. Okay, That's what the loyalist preachers, how they approached the Bible. So let's look at uh, the result of this, and then we'll look at some examples of how they did it. The result for the patriots, here is a statement from one of the patriot preachers, Abraham Cateltus. This is perhaps the most bizarre thing I've uncovered in 30 years of uh, studying all of this. He says, of the, of the American Revolution, the American cause, that's what he's talking about. It is the cause of heaven against hell. It is the cause for which heroes have fought, patriots bled, prophets, apostles, martyrs, confessors, and righteous men have died. Nay, it is a cause for which the Son of God came down from his celestial throne and expired on a cross. How many here, I won't ask for raising hands, how many here knew that Jesus came and died on the cross for the American Revolution? Probably not too many of you. Well, now you know. Now, notice he preached this in a Presbyterian church, a Reformed Calvinist church. This isn't some, you know, wingnut thing in a bar or something. Um, so this is, where, this is where you end up when you have that hermeneutic. All right? Here's the patriot interpretive process. Here's how they go about interpreting Scripture. And this, these are descriptions, by the way, of people who, who like the patriot preachers. These are the description of historians today who, are, who, who like the patriot preachers and like their message and so on. Okay? So I'm not picking on, I'm not taking opponents of theirs and saying this. They had a nuanced interpretation of Scripture influenced by violence between Catholics and Protestants in the 16th century. So instead of interpreting Scripture in the historical context of when it was written, they're interpreting it in the context of their day, given the history of the 16th century and conflict in in, uh, Europe. They typically began with key biblical text, but followed with arguments drawn from 16th and 17th century Europe. They departed from a conventional reading of Romans 13, now, in the language of these people who, again, they like these guys. So in the language of these guys, a conventional reading of Romans 13 is you read Romans 13 and see what it says. That's the conventional reading. So a conventional reading of Romans 13.1 is, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. 
That's a conventional reading of Romans 13, but they were much more creative. Um, They use key biblical text qualified by the narrative and practices, Um, qualified by the story. Uh, They looked at the passage, they looked at the story, and then interpreted the passage by the story rather than the instruction that was part of the narrative. Um, They drew from political tradition and from the ancient classics in terms of their interpretation of Scripture. And they read these passages through the prism of Republican ideology. All right? They read the passages like through a glass of Republican ideology, so it filtered out anything that didn't help Republican ideology. Uh, Another couple of historians... Uh, it was not obvious that the teaching was responsibly biblical. <laughs> uh, he, he likes them, so he can't just say it was unbiblical. It's not obvious that the teaching was responsibly biblical. They were characterized by creative exposition and hasty exegesis. They declared the, this is, uh, by the way, from a preacher back then, he declared the intention to reconcile seeming contradictions, to make self-evident truths, and in the context of his previous sentence, from nature, agree with some plain declarations of Scripture. Scripture is plain, but you've got to make it fit with these self-evident truths that nature tells us. This is like the people who can't just read Genesis 1 and say this is what it is. They've got to make it try and fit with science, right? It's the same exact thing. Um, and then one of, the, uh, one of the historians today says, before we assess the revolutionary importance of these texts, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, we, we should examine them directly. <laughs> because when we, when we examine what they said, it ain't directly. So if you want to know, we got to look at them directly first, then, you'll, then we'll look at how they did it. Exegetical precision was not required in order to enlist the Bible for the patriot cause. What about the loyalist interpretive process? What about the process of those ministers who stayed loyal to England? These are some quotes from them. With sincerity in my heart and my Bible in my hand, I sat down to explore the truth. With these guides and none but these, the process is not difficult. To seek the true and precise meaning of any passage of Scripture, it is in general necessary to know the circumstances of the writer and his end and aim in writing. Historical, grammatical interpretation. I critically examined the New Testament in the original language and considered the sublimer doctrines of revealed religion not as subjects of philosophical disquisition, but as truths or facts, which the scriptures assert. In this manner did I search the scriptures. Didn't read the Bible and take what was there as philosophical possibilities that now need to be investigated and discussed and so on, but as truth. That may sound familiar to you. My mornings before breakfast are employed in reading Hebrew. Probably a lot of you can relate to that. 
And then uh, this same preacher got a new lexicon and was very excited about it. This will naturally lead me to pursue my study of the Hebrew with more diligence. The Samaritan I can read already. But Samaritan in their day meant they're, they're Aramaic. I mean, something different now. But, but the, by the way, these, I, most of them didn't go to university. I just thought I'd point that out. His desire to understand the sense of the sacred writings results in research which costs me much labor as I consult the best expositors, ancient and modern, besides reading the original. This is Charles Inglis, one of the loyalists. Here's another one, Samuel Seabury. When we apply ourselves to the study of the scriptures, we ought to bring with us a candid, unprejudiced mind, ready to embrace and follow the truth wherever it shall lead, ready to submit to the will of God in all circumstances and to obey it in every particular. These are pretty solid. Some observations concerning patriot preaching, and I wish really, I wish I had time to go into this in a lot of detail. I do in my, in my books. Um, but I, for this, you'll just sort of have to take my word for it, but you'll see it later. So observations concerning patriot preaching, what some of the characteristics of it. First of all is politicization. Um, I'm sure you've never heard that today, but some preachers back then um, used their pulpit for political purposes. That's the whole point of the Black Robed Regiment, is that they used their pulpits to promote the revolution and recruit soldiers and so on and so forth. Um, Secondly is the desire to be popular. You know, just in case it hasn't already dawned on you, you should look at some of this and just think about today a little bit. But anyway, the desire to be popular. Uh, as one, one of the loyalist preachers said, the preachers who are less anxious to speak right than smooth things are numerous among us. Speak right rather, rather than, uh, than smooth things. Smooth things being things people want to hear, tickling the ears. To be very popular is to be prone to resist authority. A third observation, they elevated feelings above the scriptures. Never seen that today. They elevated reason above the scriptures, and that's the critically important one, especially in order to obscure the clear meaning of a passage in favor of a preferred meaning. By the way, I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but there are only three people in the history of the world who had unfallen reason. Three human beings who had unfallen reason. One of them is Jesus, thank you. Who were the other two? Adam and Eve. And how did they use their reason to get closer to God? They were already walking with God. They used their reason to reason away from God. So people who say you can reason your way to God, there's no evidence for that. The only evidence goes the other direction. And these, these people were part of that, the patriot preachers were part of that, reasoning their way away from God. Observations concerning loyalist preaching, characteristics of the loyalist preaching. First, they believed the writers of the Bible were literally inspired by God, directly, specially, and authoritatively inspired by God. Secondly, they specifically rejected the notion of interpreting Scripture in favor of liberty. Uh, Jonathan Boucher, one of them, my favorite, says, The word liberty, as meaning civil liberty, does not occur in all the scriptures. And that's, by the way, true. I looked it up. 
The Bible never talks about political liberty. Old or New Testament. What about Moses and the Israelites? We'll get there later. Third, they frequently used Old Testament stories to find applications and illustrations, but made it clear that those were not interpretations. Uh, One of the things the Patriot Preachers did a lot of was use the Old Testament and interpret it, again, in in a manner favorable to liberty. The Loyalists, when they used Old Testament passages, they used them to make illustrations or applications, but always said clearly that this is not the interpretation of the passage. If you don't get that, don't worry about it. Let it fly over. It doesn't matter. For some of you, it matters. Four, they often, this is one of my favorite things, they often apologize to their audience for political discussion of inherited passages that were not about politics. In other words, the loyalists would answer messages given by other preachers, patriot preachers, on a certain text. Um, I have over here a 61-page paper I wrote where um, a a loyalist preacher is answering two sermons from patriot preachers specifically. So he had to use the text that that preacher used, but then he apologized in both cases to the public and said, look, this passage has nothing to do with politics, but I have to to preach on it in this context because I'm answering this other guy. So I just find that great. The content of Patriot Sermons. The content of the Patriot Sermons was predominantly the theories of John Locke and natural rights philosophy. Those of you who were educated in America prior to 1980 might know something of what this is, or those of you who... uh, have gone to universities, you probably don't either. <laughs> so the theories of John Locke, natural rights philosophy, uh, this, a lot of this will look familiar to you if you just kind of glance through the list. Here we got 13 things. Uh, they all look like very American things, right? If you know anything about American civics or American history, these are very American things, Okay, and that's because America was very influenced by John Locke and natural rights philosophy. Uh, and so um, these are the things that they uh, trumpeted. I'm, I'm not going to take time to go through them because I have 726 slides. Uh, not really. Um, I'm not going to go through them all, but um, these are important things. The key one for our purposes today is number 13, which, by the way, is my favorite number. I didn't realize it. Anyway. Number 13, the right of resistance to tyranny. That's what it all comes down to, ultimately, that there is a right of resistance. This is a critical factor for the American Revolution, uh, and it was a critical factor for them. That if someone, if you consider someone a tyrant, then you have a right to resist, and you have a right to use violence to resist. You have a right to destroy private property to resist, and so on and so forth, okay? That's a critical element that obviously uh, impacts the American Revolution, right? Which, for those of you who don't remember, that was violence. And for those of you who don't think they destroyed private property, go look up the Boston Tea Party, uh, among many, many, many other things. So uh, this is what the patriot preachers are preaching. In fact, Along the way, they'll frequently say, as the celebrated Locke says, or as uh, Mr. Locke says, or blah, 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 blah. They regularly quoted John Locke in their sermons. Some of them quoted John Locke in the sermon significantly more than they did the Bible. 
but given their education we talked about before, it's perhaps not surprising. Here's one uh, statement by one of the Patriot preachers. We need not a special revelation from heaven to teach us that men are born equal and free. These are the plain dictates of that reason and common sense with which the common parent of man has informed the human bosom. Rulers, receiving their authority originally and solely from the people, can be rightfully possessed of no more authority than these have consented to. This is very Lockean. It's not very Roman 13-ish. To suggest that God would require obedience to those who rule without consent is representing God under the horrid character of a tyrant. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Regarding God's relationship with the Israelites, this is one of my favorite things. He would not rule them in a manner contrary to their own inclination. <laughs> There's more of this coming. This comes from a, a message, a particular message, uh, entitled, uh, The Republic of the Israelites, an example to America, or something to that effect. You didn't realize that ancient Israel was a republic. <laughs> See, you're learning a lot today. Man has no obligation to love anyone and is urged to preserve the rest of mankind only when his own preservation comes not in competition. That's just like the gospel. (laughs) The magistrate is properly the trustee of the people. He can have no just power but what he receives from them. Magistrates have no power or authority but what they derive from the people. Rulers are appointed for this very end, or this purpose, to be ministers of God for good. The people have a right to expect this from them and to require it. It is the express or implicit condition upon which they were chosen and continued in public office. Their time, their abilities, their authority, by their acceptance the public trust, are consecrated to the community. It's not exactly what Romans 13 says. This ought to be looked upon as a sacred and inalienable right that no one can be obliged to submit to any law except such as are made either by himself or by his representative. Now, by the way, and one of the things that Jonathan Boucher, a loyalist preacher, Jonathan Boucher really takes on John Locke. Most of the patriot preachers do, but Jonathan Boucher in particular, he just takes Locke a, a from a biblical perspective, apart, line by line. And what, if, if you take the logical extension of this, think about it for a second. No one is obliged to submit to any law except such as are made either by himself or by his representative. That means if your member of Congress doesn't vote for a law, then you're not bound by it. Because you didn't consent to it, neither did your representative. But that isn't what Locke wants you to get out of it. But anyway... The Republic, this is stuff from the Republic of the Israelites, that sermon I mentioned. Even the law of Moses, though fr- there's sojourners in here, you'll want to check this out, okay, because you didn't learn this from Dr. Varner. Even the law of Moses, though framed by God himself, was not imposed upon that people against their will. 
they freely adopted it, and it became their law by their own voluntary and express consent. The memorable act of the day depended entirely on the consent of the people. Israel was a free republic, and the sovereignty resided in the people. Even God didn't understand that. (laughs) When he talks to Samuel and he says, these people are not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as being king over them, he was apparently deluded in some way into thinking he was the king of Israel. In reality, the people had the sovereignty. The people elected their kings. We all remember that. That's in 2 Hezekiah 3.4. The people elected their kings. This natural and important right God never deprived them of. Content of the loyalist sermons. I'm going to simplify and shorten the message here. This is a basic uh, summary of the content of the Loyalist Sermons. If you're interested in more detail, um, you can get my second book. There's a whole chapter on their biblical arguments. Um, What's a lot more interesting and more important for us is the patriot side, because that's what America, what the revolution was based on. Let's look at the patriots on Romans 13. So what did they do with Romans 13? Patriot preachers ignored Romans 13, largely, or removed or reversed its meaning by adopting convenient definitions of terms or by adding absent words into the text. Now, let me give you some examples of this to show you what I'm talking about. Let's look at convenient definitions. Uh, the definition of a ruler or magistrate. They simply declared that tyrants are no magistrates and that no tyrant can be a ruler. So when, the, when Romans 13 talks about rulers, they simply defined away rulers with whom they disagreed or they thought were tyrannical against them. They don't count as that. Now, the Bible doesn't do that. Romans 13 doesn't do that. It doesn't say... That, but that's how they defined those terms. When they act contrary to the end and design of their creation, and then the end and design of the creation was democratic theory's definition, not God's theory. God says government was imposed um, and created to restrain man's evil. That's the purpose of civil government. Democratic theory, it's entirely different. When they don't do that, then they cease being magistrates. Rulers who do not seek the general good become ministers of Satan rather than ministers of God. None of this, of course, is what Paul said or meant in Romans 13. What about when Paul says in Romans 13 that government is from God? Where the governments get their authority from God. Civil government may be said to be from God as civil government is founded in the very nature of man as a social being and in the nature and constitution of things. Now, you might not get that, so I just simplified it with a a parallel suggestion. So God can be said to be the source of authority to about the same extent as the person who invented musical script is the source of a Beethoven symphony. The real source of authority is the people. 
So yeah, God is the source in kind of a generic, uh, big picture, behind the scenes kind of thing, but the people really are the authority, is what they're saying. What about adding words to the text? Uh, Jonathan Mayhew says, it becomes our indispensable duty to resist and oppose them. And he says, and that is what Paul is saying in Romans 13. It's our indispensable duty to resist and oppose them. Of course, Romans 13 never says anything remotely close to that. Secondly, there's an insistence that government should be ministers of God or should restrain evil. The notion that they must qualify for that status by their actions... The way they looked at Romans 13 in verses 3 and 4 is not a description of what governments do, but a list of qualifications that governments or entities have to try and meet in order to qualify as a government in their mind. And so you decide whether a government is doing these things in verses 3 and 4, and if you don't think so, then you can declare the government illegitimate. It's not a government. Okay? But Paul doesn't say government should be ministers of God in Romans 13. He says they are ministers of God. He doesn't say they should restrain evil. He says they do restrain evil. He doesn't say governments should be um, uh, an avenger who who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. He says they are. He doesn't say rulers should be servants of God. He says they are servants of God. This is a very you know, slight thing, but it's a huge thing. It's a huge distinction. Romans 13 says all governments are ministers of God. All governments do restrain evil. And then just to anticipate a question that might come at the end, and I don't want any questions, so I'll just do it now. <laughs> Some people would say, well, what about Hitler's government? You mean they restrained evil? Yeah, they did. You know that the country in the world that had the lowest crime rate in the 1930s was Hitler's Germany. Why? Because you didn't want to rob a bank or, or assault somebody and get taken to the Gestapo. Right? So Hitler's... Don't mistake me. I'm the most misquoted person at the university. <laughs> Hitler did a lot of evil. Tons of evil, massive evil, un- inconceivable evil that we can't even imagine. Every government restrains evil, and every government commits evil. If you don't think the United States government commits evil, talk to the 60 million unborn children who've been murdered with the government's approval. Every government restrains evil. In the 1970s, the Soviet Union had the lowest crime rate in the world. Because again, the the penalties that you got for committing crime were so severe. So they restrained evil while they were committing evil. So the fact that a government is doing something evil does not mean they're not restraining evil. So Paul says all governments restrain evil. They're all ministers of God. They're all avengers who bring wrath upon the one who practices unrighteousness. So this is a description of governments, not a test of some entity as to whether it should qualify as a government or not. But it was taken that way by the patriot preachers and by anybody who believes in the right of resistance notion. That if a government isn't doing what you approve of or you think that they're tyrannical from your perspective, 
then you have a right to resist them and to use violence and destroy private property and whatnot. Regarding the source of authority, magistrates are to consider themselves as the servants of the people. Verse 6, because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. It is a minister of God. Magistrates are to consider themselves as the servants of the people, seeing from them it is that they derive their power and authority. Let every person be in subjection over there. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are them. Romans 13 says the exact opposite of these things. And another thing that was very popular was adding qualifying terms. They would talk about civil rulers as such, rather than civil rulers. And what that means is, the only people who count as civil rulers are those who I think are acting like civil rulers that I approve of. So they are civil rulers as civil rulers in my definition of civil rulers. So it means I, it's, just, it's all based on what I approve of and what I don't approve of. Or civil rulers in the due exercise of their authority. And of course, who's the judge of whether they're in the due exercise of their authority? I am. So I become the judge of all of this. Those rulers actually vested with authority. Who are the ones actually vested with authority? The ones I approve of. And this is to get around their obligation to rulers they don't like. It's very simple. You just define the ruler as not actually being your ruler. Then you don't have to, you have, you have no obligation. As I've told students now for 42 years, I've taught, oh gosh. For 42 years, I, I was five when I started. Um, for 42 years, I've told students, as there are some of them in the room here, they might remember, if you let me define the terms, I'll win every argument. And that's what's going on in America today, by the way. One group of people are being allowed to define the terms, and it's making significant changes. Fifth, they said the purpose of government is to secure the good of civil society. Romans 13 says it's to restrain evil. And that good, in Romans 13, when it says um, it's a minister of God to you for good, that isn't for the good of civil society. That's for good in God's eyes. That's for good in God's eyes. For example, most of you probably don't want someone to cut you open. But they do, you do if it's a surgery that helps you your life. It's for your good, even though you don't like it at the time. And it's not something you would choose. For good is in God's eyes. i got to talk louder because he's, <laughs> he's getting into it. Sixth, obedience required to governments, only to governments, which answer the sole end of all government, which is the good of society. Romans 13 mentions no such limitation. The ground and reason of our obligation is the usefulness of magistracy and its subservience to the general welfare. According to Romans 13, the ground and reason of our obligation is its authority comes from God. That's Paul's argument. Let me give you an example of one individual. There's an interesting guy, John Joachim Zubli. Isn't that a great name? 
Any pregnant women in here? <laughs> John Joachim, yeah, there we go. There's, a, there's an option for you. John Joachim Zubli. Zubli is an interesting case because he started out as a patriot. He was actually in the Continental Congress. And when they started talking revolution, then he said, wait a minute, I oppose what Congress... And by the way, most of the loyalists, almost all of the loyalists, opposed a lot of what the uh, British Parliament was doing. They disagreed with it. They opposed it. But when it came to rebellion, that's where they drew the line and said, no, we can't do that. And that Zubli was one of those. And because he said, okay, I'm not going to favor rebellion, his property was taken away from him, and he had to go out and live in, to, in the uh, uh, deserted regions of Georgia, out in the woods and so forth, because they were after him. But anyway, Zubli, when he was a patriot, did a very famous message called the Law of Liberty. And one of the things he said here is, the gospel gives no higher authority to magistrates than to be the ministers of God for the good of the subject. This is classic patriot thing, right? It's to be ministers of God, not that they are. And it's for the good of the subject rather than the good of God. So as a patriot preacher, he says this. Later, when he became a loyalist, this is how he addressed this issue. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive themselves damnation. In other words, he just quoted Romans 13 too. Difference in approach. So what's the resulting line of argument from this uh, patriot approach and, and hermeneutic and whatnot? These are some quotes from uh, patriot ministers. Paul is calling for submission only to those who actually perform the duty of rulers by exercising a reasonable and just authority for the good of human society not to all who bear the title of rulers. If it be our duty to obey our king merely for this reason, that he rules for the public welfare, which is the only argument the apostle makes use of, I missed that part, it follows that when he turns tyrant, we are bound to throw off our allegiance to him and to resist. And that according to the tenor of the apostle's argument in this passage. Romans 13 is really about resistance to authority. You just have to read it judiciously. And you'll see what it's really about. Parallel passage to Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Uh, There are two ways that they viewed 1 Peter 2 to get around it. One was every ordinance of man, which is what it starts out in 1 Peter 2.13, means civil governments created by the people. So it's not all governments, it's governments created by the people. That's what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, of course, gives no such limit. And they don't address John 19.11, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Secondly, others said every ordinance of man means laws that are good and ordained of God. These laws protect people's rights against tyranny. Uh, In English, another word for ordinance is law, but not in the Greek. It doesn't mean that. It means an institution, as the first number talks about. 
Um, but anyway, a bunch of them used the second one because it seemed better. So you can be against laws that don't seem just to you. Then they also developed another tactic, which was to shift attention from the words of Paul and Peter to Paul and Peter's actions. So in Acts 22, Paul did not submit to authority when they planned to scourge him, but condemned this conduct as unjust and tyrannical. This is when they stretched Paul out to to, um, whip him, and Paul says, wait a minute, is it lawful for you to whip a Roman uh, citizen who hasn't been condemned? And they say, okay, well, no, we can't. Well, the Patriots said that there he's not submitting to authority. Well, it depends on what you mean by submission. Um, He, by the way, said at the same time, if I've done anything for which I refuse to die, I don't refuse to die. He very much was submitting to authority, but that's a whole other discussion. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas, this is a classic. Paul, you remember when uh, the earthquake came and the jail was broken open and Paul and, and, uh, and Silas had a chance to escape and they didn't? They stayed and then led singing, you know, with the, tr- with the prisoners and so on and so forth. Did you realize that they, were, that they were challenging authority there? They were not being submissive? Paul and Silas did not escape when prison doors were open. When the authorities ordered them released, they demanded that the magistrates admit their tre- maltreatment. That's a whole other discussion, too. Paul absolutely refused to obey the command of the magistrates in order to reprove them for tyranny. Uh, And then the classic, which is important, couple of scriptures, in Acts 4 and Acts 5, where uh, Peter says we must obey God rather than men, when there's a choice between those two things, Peter refused to obey commands to stop preaching the gospel, saying that he must obey God rather than human authorities. He absolutely did, and that is absolutely uh, a, a valid, legitimate biblical principle. If we are forced to choose between God and men, we obey God. Okay? That has nothing to do with submission, by the way. That's obedience. We'll get there in a minute. But they applied this then to their situation. It was applied to the situation of revolutionary America because the apostles were like the American patriots. They asserted their rights as Roman citizens against tyrants. The Americans had been denied their right of representation, and therefore uh, they also could disobey the authorities. As if the right of representation was equivalent to preaching the gospel. The line of argument turns on a couple of things. First of all, the addition of the word passive to biblical commands, to be obedient, the patriots called actively taking advantage of one's rights, refusal to submit, which is what Paul was doing. He took advantage of his right as a Roman citizen to not be whipped, and they said that was not being submissive. That's not what that is. But most importantly, and this is what people get messed up with today, conflating subjection or submission with obedience. These are two different Greek words. Do I have them on here? No, I don't. Maybe later. There are two different Greek words. Paul talks about them separately in Titus 3. Uh, Hupotasso and Pytharcheo, they mean different things. Subjection or submission is recognizing the authority of those above you. Recognizing that they have legitimate authority over you. They have the authority to punish you. They have the authority to command you to do things and, and to punish you if you don't do them. 
Okay? Obedience, everybody in here knows what that is, because we all had parents, and most of us were parents, or are parents. It's doing what they say, right? Now, let's just take a quick example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were ordered to uh, falsely worship uh, an idol. They said no. They were disobedient. And then what happened? They organized the other Israelites, and they gathered arms, and they... No, they still submitted to the authority by recognizing that the king had authority to punish them and they went into the fiery furnace and took the punishment. That's the difference between obedience and submission. Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was ordered to do something he couldn't do in order to be obedient to God, so he disobeyed and then took the punishment and went in the lion's den. Paul is writing most of these books of the Bible from prison, Because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. But he went to prison. He didn't organize a rebellion. Okay? So there's the difference between subjection and obedience. And when the patriot preachers, and for that matter, a lot of people today, when they read Romans 13, they conflate those words and they substitute the word obedience here in Romans 13 where it isn't present. It's subjection. And then they say, see, it's inconsistent because then later they say you have to obey God rather than men and disobey. But that isn't inconsistent because they're two different concepts. Uh, We could spend the next hour on that, but we don't have an hour. So the question is, the key question for them is, where do Paul and Peter ever speak of or support rebellion? The most you can get out of Romans 13 is to be disobedient. That's the most you can get. But to be disobedient, there's a huge step from there to rebellion. There's a huge step from disobeying and taking the punishment to organizing rebellion. Okay? Uh, Let's look at some other passages of Scripture besides Romans 13. We'll do these very quickly. Liberty passages. Remember I said their hermeneutic was to interpret everything in, in the context of liberty. One of their favorites... Uh, was Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. By the way, I'm using King James Version because that's what they used. Um, now, as in the, is the case with all biblical passages about freedom or liberty, this is talking about spiritual liberty, not political or civil liberty. Liberty. This is one of the cases where Jonathan Boucher apologized to his audience and he said, Well, I'm answering this other guy's message. He used Galatians 5 1 for this. I apologize. It has nothing to do with politics, but I have to do it because that's what he used. Um, Freedom is the very spirit and tenor of the gospel, they said concerning this verse. God hath made us free politically, freedom is a birthright. War is the only way to honor Paul's command to stand fast for freedom. Jesus purchased this freedom at the inestimable price of his blood. We cannot give up civil liberty without incurring Jehovah's most tremendous indignation and curse. Uh, One guy today says, Galatians 5.1 for them is the ultimate proof that freedom's cause was God's cause. To refuse to fight against British tyranny is a sin against the express command of God. He says to stand fast for liberty. So if you don't fight against British tyranny, you're sinning. Stand fast is a martial military command, they said. 
Paul's call to defend one's political and civil liberty. Now, just to give you an example of this, Jacob Duchesne, who, by the way, is a fairly well-known guy because he gave the first prayer of the opening day of the Continental Congress, and then later, a, couple, a year or so later, he actually turned sides and was against the revolution. But anyway, that's another issue. Jacob, and he also became, well, Jacob Duchesne, uh, in his, his sermon on Galatians 5.1, catch this now, he spends six of the 25 pages of the message explaining that the verse refers to spiritual liberty, to gospel freedom, as he calls it, freedom from observance of the ceremonial law, which is what the verse is about. He spends six pages explaining what the verse is actually about, the real meaning of the verse. He says, to stand fast is to be vigilant and prepared against the attacks of Satan, to be ready to resist and repel sin, which is what it's about. Then on the ninth page, of the sermon, he says, I am now to strike into another path. And he proceeds to apply the verse to political liberty and the American cause for the rest of the sermon. So he spends six pages explaining what the verse actually is, and it has nothing to do with political freedom, and then says, but by the way, I'm just going to apply it this way. And in that sermon, as he goes along, he calls political freedom, after talking about spiritual freedom, he calls political freedom the noblest kind of liberty. Apparently it's more noble than spiritual freedom. And he says political liberty ought to be worshipped, along with virtue. Virtue and liberty are to be worshipped. Other liberty verses... Uh, some of these you may have seen at a Christian school and blazoned over the library. In this age where we can tear down statues and stuff, can I go around? No, never mind. John eight thirty two, the truth shall make you free. How many times have you heard that in how many contexts? Everybody and their brother does this, and they all do it on the basis of what they think is truth, right? Well, what is the truth that's being talked about in John eight thirty two? Right? It's the gospel. That's the truth that will make you, not truth generically, not whatever truth there, you know, two plus two equals four will make you free. It's the gospel. And it's clear in verse 34 where it talks about contrast this with being a slave of sin. That's the kind of freedom that's involved there. But anyway, 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. My conclusion from that is that the spirit was not present in the southern colonies where 40% of the people living there were being held as slaves. Miscellaneous verses applied by the patriots. Colossians 2.21, touch not, taste not, handle not. You don't get it? Well, obviously, this is in support of the boycott of British tea. doesn't matter, by the way, that actually in the context they're saying don't do touch not. But anyway, that's another thing. Exodus 1.8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. That was applied to King George, of course. Judges 5.23, curse ye Maraz because they came not to the help of the Lord. This is uh, some people who didn't uh, participate with the Israelites when they were cleaning out um, 
the land. This was applied to the loyalists. They'll be cursed because they didn't come to the help of the Lord and fight in the revolution. Deuteronomy 26.19, sojourners, here we go, because you already know this. To make thee high above all nations in praise and name and honor that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord. That, of course, is referring to America. That's what God had in mind there. Maybe not. Exodus 14 and 15, uh, about the Exodus. Uh, King George is Pharaoh and its deliverance from tyranny. Um, the ironic thing about this, and the, some of you know that the, that the Patriots uh, built a lot on the Moses and the Exodus thing, and Washington was called the American Moses, and so on and so forth. I always encourage people to turn to Exodus 12:52, and don't turn there because it doesn't exist. But that's the verse which says, And then Moses created an Israelite army and overthrew Pharaoh. Uh, That isn't what happened, right? In fact, Moses didn't do squat. Moses spoke to Pharaoh, told him what God was going to do, and God handled everything, right? All the way, from the beginning through the Red Sea. There's no rebellion there. Furthermore, if you get into it, I encourage you to do so. If you look at the passages, and by the way, when when Israel left Egypt, they did so at Pharaoh's command, Exodus, you should look this up at some point. Exodus 12, 31 and 32, Pharaoh says, get out, leave. Okay. They weren't even disobedient, much less revolutionary. They didn't leave until Pharaoh told them to leave. But if you look at all the passages where God says, tell him, let my people go, it isn't for political freedom. It's to exchange slavery to Pharaoh to slavery to Yahweh. Let my people go that they may serve me. That's what it says all the way through. It's never about political liberty. I'm sorry, I'm preaching. All right. Um, they, they quoted passages in Daniel and Revelation and uh, called England the beast and the Antichrist. So those passages were prophetic of England in this cause, which is interesting Because just a few years earlier, in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, they applied those passages to France. So apparently they're, you know, interesting. All right. What about the loyalists on Romans 13? What did they say? The instruction here is clear and direct, they said. They said, this important duty of subjection to lawful authority is one plain and principled doctrine of Christianity. Is delivered to the world by an inspired apostle of Christ. This command comes to us by the authority of the same God and Savior who has given us every other precept that we meet with in Holy Scripture. No rank or station in life, no position that you might hold, can possibly exempt anyone from the strictest obedience to it. It is directed to all men in general without any exception. The authority they, the higher powers, are invested with is from heaven, not from the people. They are God's vice regents upon earth and are ministers of God to us for good. Notice just for good, not for the good of society or the good of the people or the other things that were added on. They are, not should be, and it's for good, not the good of the subjects. 
God often gives commands without identifying an accompanying punishment for disobedience, but this was one of such great importance that he included it. Verse 2, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The Bible doesn't always say, give a punishment after, but it does here. They also noted that Nero was, how many of you knew that? Nero was the Roman emperor at the time that Paul wrote this command to the Romans. Nero, who was such a bad guy, there's a branch of theology, it's goofy, but a branch of theology that says that Nero was the Antichrist. That there isn't an Antichrist coming at the end. Nero, we already had him and it was Nero. That's how bad he was. He was the emperor when Paul said... Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. He who resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God. One of the top, the most influential of all of the patriot preachers, um, in his note, in a footnote, in the published version of his sermon, not what he gave to to the congregation, but in a footnote of the published version, he says, Uh, He puts in a little, in parentheses, uh, whether it was Nero who was a ruler or not, uh, that may be important, and then he just (laughs) went on. In other words, what did it mean to those people? If George is a tyrant and Nero is not, which is interesting. If it should finally appear that the claim of the British Parliament is just, and according to law, Would it be not a necessary consequence that the colonies have resisted that power which is ordained of God and are in the high road to open rebellion, asked one of the uh, loyalist preachers. 1 Peter 2, they said as a parallel command, they emphasized in it the words king and governors as sent by him, because that particularly applied to their situation, and they also, also emphasized Nero. Now, they also refer to John 19.11, which is another verse that's critically important that the patriots didn't go out with a 10-foot pole or a 100-foot pole. This is Jesus standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, hey, you're not saying anything to me? Don't you know I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, get out my face. You got no authority over me. I am God, very God. No, he said this. Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. The one innocent guy in history is about to be executed. And to the guy who's going to do it, he says, you have authority over me given you from above. The the loyalists took note of that. Here's what they said. Here we learn from the mouth of our Redeemer himself. Whence is, that is, where is derived that dignity and sacredness which belongs to those who are invested with any public power and office. Here we behold the God of the universe submitting to that supreme authority he himself has conferred upon man and acknowledging the reverence due to that very power which was shortly to pronounce the sentence of death against him. All right, to be fair... To the patriot preachers, which I haven't... Well, I have been fair, but I've been brutal. Um, The main problem for the patriot preachers was that there is nowhere in the Bible to go to make a legitimate case for rebellion. Some form of the word rebel or revolt is used 142 times in the Bible, all unfavorably, all negatively. 
There is no example, favorable example or instruction in the Bible concerning rebellion or revolution. So they engaged in creative interpretation in support of their purpose, just as so many preachers do today, to get your best life now or for other various and sundry purposes. Patriot versus loyalist characteristics. There's a difference in hermeneutics. The patriots are friendly to liberty. Loyalists believed in a literal, historical, grammatical. Loyalists were more concerned that a passage of Scripture be applied appropriately. The theories of John Locke were central in the battle between patriot and loyalist preachers. Patriots relied on them. Loyalists attacked them. Patriot... Uh, sermons tended more toward emotional appeal. There was a lot of fear in uh, patriot preaching, fear of slavery by the British and so on. Fifth, patriot preachers displayed, and this is, this is amazing to me, patriot preachers displayed an amazing ability to ignore or minimize the seriousness of patriot actions and the suffering and injustices visited upon innocent people, especially to fellow ministers. You don't know this, we often say the American Revolution, unlike the French Revolution, the, the uh, Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, was a peaceful uh, kind of thing with no recriminations and so on and so forth. That's entirely untrue. That's history written by the, the victors. Um, loyalists in America were maltreated in numerous ways up and down the line, have your property stolen, uh, lose your job, uh, thrown in prison without a trial, uh, just up and down. Uh, they closed churches, um, denied freedom of, of religion. They uh, found all the loyalist materials they could find and burned it. If any publisher printed any loyalist materials, they ransacked and burned his shop. Um, they stole private property. They, you know, the, we have the, the sort of... Um, sort of comical tar and feathering. Not exactly comical to have hot tar burned o- poured over your body, second and third degree burns. A lot of people, by the way, uh, could not have children afterwards. Um, uh, a lot of were murdered, hanged. The origin of lynching, by the way, comes from the American Revolution, not from the Civil Rights Movement. Charles Lynch was a guy who went around to loyalist homes, and if someone was a loyalist, he took them out and hanged them. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we don't have time for, and it's not necessary. I'm sorry. Um, but it's amazing to me that the patriot preachers were just immune to all of this innocent suffering that's going on around them. They never really talked about it or, or excoriated the authorities for that. It wasn't even authority. It was mostly mob violence. It was mostly mobs. And by the way, concerning the matter of suffering, the patriot argument depended on the assumption that Christians need not suffer for disobedience. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the apostles, didn't understand this. In fact, Peter talks about it. Jesus left us an example to follow, to suffer, when we have to be disobedient because of uh, obedience to God. But the patriot argument depended on the idea that that's not an option. If you can't be obedient, then you have to rebel. There's no middle ground. The lawyer said you must take punishment for disobedience. Loyalists were much more concerned with process and legality 
Um, mob rule was the norm um, on the other side. Tale of Two Jonathans. Uh, let me just run over this quickly before we run out of time. Jonathan Mayhew um, was arguably the most important of all of the uh, patriot preachers. Um, I don't have time for it. He wrote a sermon called that has been called the morning gun of the revolution. And it's critically important because he was the first one to turn Romans 13 on its head. And you have these, you have these Calvinist reformed churches who have been taught Cal, what Calvin, Calvin said, by the way, which was entirely against rebellion. This is another, Calvin's, Calvin's been slandered for centuries. Calvin was adamant against rebellion and revolution. Calvin literally said, if you, if you think that's true, you're stupid. Uh, and, and so they have been taught Calvin's view, which is you have to be obedient and s- submit to authority. Mayhew turned it on its head, Romans 13, and gave them an excuse that others picked up on. Who was Jonathan Mayhew? He was a Unitarian. He didn't believe in the, in the Trinity. He was an Arian. He believed Jesus was a specially created being. He was a rationalist. He said, There's no, there is room for our being instructed by revelation, it's the proper office of reason to determine whether it's proposed to us under the notion of a revelation from God. We ourselves judge what is right. Um, he said the power of God himself is limited by the everlasting tables of reason. God is limited by reason. He says we have a right to judge and act for ourselves, to worship God according to our consciences. This is another American principle that's very anti-biblical. Uh, There's this whole thing about hell, you know, people going there who don't worship God the way he wants them to, you know, but um, he said all religions are equally valid because they're all based on natural moral duties. That was the basis of it. The substance of true religion is the same everywhere. And he mentioned, you know, Hindus and others. They're all the same as Christianity. He was an unbeliever. He attacked imputation, justification by faith, need for grace, total depravity, virgin birth, original sin, regeneration, the atoning work of Christ. He said Jesus was merely an example to us. He said beliefs and doctrines were niceties of speculation and unimportant. He had a salvation by works and morality belief. You're saved by your works and by being moral. He said... It can't be much clearer than this. If it should be objected that this doctrine leads men to trust to their own righteousness, I answer, it's very reasonable that they should do so. That's in fact how you're saved, is by your own righteousness. And I contrast him with Jonathan Boucher, which I wish I could because he's my favorite guy, but we don't have time. All right. So bottom line, patriot preachers wanted to use biblical references to make a political argument an argument based on what political theorists and political activists teach. Loyalist preachers wanted to make a biblical argument based on what the Bible teaches and to measure political action by that standard. That's the big difference between them. All right, so what? I should skip this and just go to questions because it'll just make you mad. (laughs) Oh, I can't resist. So what? Is there a right of resistance, biblically? No. If there is, 
How do you explain away Romans 13 too? He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. I had a, got an email from a guy this, this week and said, I believe that Americans should participate in the American Revolution. What do you think? And I just said, Romans 13 too. Is this not clear? Uh, what is the standard by which you declare a government illegitimate? And where do you get that standard? Bible doesn't say it. So on what basis do you make that determination? And who has a right to make that decision? Where does God give us the right to declare a government illegitimate, uh, etc.? According to American patriots, individuals decide for themselves what constitutes unacceptable and illegitimate tyranny. Does this not unhinge civil society? If everybody decides for themselves what they want to live under and what they don't, is it not antinomianism in which each man is a law unto himself? Paul told people living under Nero... All right, here's the part where I make you mad. I always like to leave people mad on the way out. (laughs) If one recognizes a right of resistance and affirms the tactics of the American Revolution, one must affirm the resistance and tactics, though not necessarily the cause. You don't have to agree with the cause, but you have to agree with the, the tactics and the right of Antifa. The Ferguson and Baltimore rioters. Black Lives Matter, and for that matter, the Confederacy and the Civil War. All of these people think they're being tyrannized by the government, and therefore they've declared the government illegitimate, and they use violence, and they break windows, and they throw Molotov cocktails and whatnot. Remember the Boston Tea Party and a bunch of other things I didn't mention to you? Uh, It's the same. They claim that it's the same as the American Revolution, and conservatives get very upset. It's the same. In each case, individuals and groups believe they're being tyrannized by the government. Their rights should be celebrated, shouldn't it? We just did the 4th of July, celebrated. See, I told you I'd make you mad. (laughs) All right, if you're interested in more... Um, I'm shamelessly plugging two books. I'm not so shamelessly because I brought a box of them and I was going to sell them and I decided, no, that's inappropriate. Um, But uh, two books by me and then this uh, book by James Byrd, which is an investigation of how um, the preaching and the Bible was used and so forth in the revolution as well. He's not a believer, so if you want that approach, uh, you can have that. All right, it's five till ten. We got five minutes. Questions? So what happened to the loyalists after the? After the war, a lot of the loyalists uh, left the country voluntarily. A lot of them were kicked out of the country. Very few remained living in America. A lot of them went to Canada. Uh, many of them went back to England. Well, let me just say this. To be fair, not all the loyalist preachers were great preachers of the gospel either. On this issue, they were, they were solid, and on some things they were solid, but they weren't necessarily solid always on the gospel themselves. Some of them were, some of them weren't. Um, and it, God had a remnant of people who were preaching the gospel, and that's persisted down through, so... So some of the men that pushed for the signing of the Declaration, like Adams, uh, Jefferson, Franklin, which we consider patriots, did they also hold these beliefs? 
That's what this book is all about. I have chapters on each of those guys and what they believed. Um, they were not believers. Uh, and yes, they, they followed all these things. John Adams trumpeted Jonathan Mayhew, the guy we just looked at, and he said that everybody read him, and he was, uh, he said, well, I was going to read this. Um, he said concerning Mayhew, um, if the orders on the 4th of July really wish to investigate the principles and feelings which produced the revolution, they ought to study Dr. Mayhew's sermon on passive obedience and non-resistance. He said it was read by everybody. So that's what you should do for your 4th of July celebration. Um, this shows my ignorance of history, but you know, um, they, they framed a lot of the reasons they wanted the revolution in terms of the Bible. But, uh, if you could narrow it down to one real reason, what was their main reason for wanting to separate from the <laughs> Their real reason. Gosh, that, you can't do it at one thing. There's several things. Basically, they wanted their own country... They didn't want to pay the taxes that they should pay. Americans were the least taxed people in the history of the world. In the history of the world. And the taxes they were being asked to pay was simply to pay for the forts that were on the border uh, with France that the British had just fought a war in the French and Indian War to protect them and so forth. All they were asked to do was pay the taxes to support those forts And the main tax that the Boston Tea Party was over, the tea tax, you didn't even have to pay. It was a tax on tea, so just don't buy the tea. Um, Anyway, it's it's a long... Some of the Patriot preachers addressed slavery. The Loyalists addressed it a lot more because they accused the Patriots of hypocrisy. There were some patriot preachers who addressed the slavery issue, but parenthetically, and then they moved on. There were preachers, aside from either of these camps, that, t- that spoke a lot about slavery. So how did the loyalists respond to the, the, the people who rebelled? Like, so if we know that the rebellion is wrong, then do the loyalists, uh, other than just speaking out against them, They tried to prevent the, the loyalist ministers tried to prevent the rebellion by publishing sermons and getting the word out, but then the patriots started burning them and destroying them and so forth. And so we don't even have all the ones that a lot of them were destroyed, we don't have. Um, some loyalists joined the British side. Uh, there was actually a loyalist regiment in the, on the, in the British army. Uh, some loyalists uh, worked as spies for the British and whatnot, but those numbers are really, really small. Uh, most loyalists just tried to make it through uh, without, without getting their property taken or getting uh, beaten up or, or attacked and so forth, and then a lot of them left the country. So they, there wasn't a lot. The other thing they did, by the way, the, which people don't understand, they weren't just apologists for England. As I said, they opposed a lot of the British policies, and they were very critical of them. And what they actually did was not call for people to, uh, to obey Parliament. So they called for people to go to their state legislatures. Because, the, I don't know if you know this, it wasn't the state legislatures that did all of the revolutionary stuff. They created their own groups and called them authorities. The Continental Congress had no legitimate authority. 
under the law. They were just, they wanted to do their own thing, so they bypassed the state legislatures. And the lawyers were saying, go to your own representatives who you've elected. They're talking about no taxation without representation. Well, then go to the people that are representing you. Uh, and, they, and they were bypassing them, so they tried to get them to do that. But there was, they were in a tough position. There wasn't a lot they could do, especially because they'd get attacked by a mob. And so... But here I am, sitting in this room without a mask, you know, not six feet away from here. I'm going to go to a church service under my own volition that's also not practicing social distancing. And most of the people aren't going to wear masks. And I'm going to sing. And so I'm questioning, you know, am I... Let me, let me cut you short, because I know where you're going. That's good. And that's really good. I'm glad you brought that up, because I was going to and I forgot. Um, so what about today's circumstances and so forth? You're not wearing a mask, I'm not wearing a mask, we're blah, 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 right? So several things. A, the governor and the mayor do not have authority to do what they're doing. Uh, governor and mayor do not have authority to supersede the Constitution of the United States, and, the, and free exercise of religion and freedom of assembly, for that matter, are constitutional rights. So they don't have legitimate authority under our system of government to do what they're doing. So to disobey them, I would argue... Is, is okay in that sense, all right? As long as, here's the, here's the bottom line I want to emphasize, as long as you remain subject. So if I disobey them, if we disobey them, and the authorities then punish us, then we take the punishment. But we think we're right. I've been in consultation with the elders from the beginning. Uh, George Crawford, who's a lawyer, he and I are friends, and, and a couple other the elders are lawyers, and we've been talking through this whole process all the way through. The reason that Grace Church shut down to begin with was because of Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 8, not Romans 13, because they don't have authority to do what they're doing. But for sake of testimony, it's like meat sacrificed to idols. For sake of testimony, we restricted our rightful liberty for a while. But when it's unending... There's no end in sight, and it continues to be more restrictive and so forth. At some point, then, you have to stand up and say, I have to obey God rather than men. God tells me to worship him. God tells me to use song in worshiping him, and so on and so forth. And so I have to obey God rather than men. And so at some point, we have to do that. We can still do what we can. The room was to be limited to 100 people. So you got 100 people, you know, sections kind of thing. Uh, and they're spaced apart somewhat, not six feet, but somewhat. And, and they're offering masks at the door and so on. So they're, they're complying to some extent, but there's no obligation to comply when the person doesn't have authority to tell you that thing. Rulers have authority from God, but that authority is not, if they, if they order you to give your car to your neighbor, they don't have authority to do that, okay? So you have to balance those things out. And the only reason that we complied for a while was because of our testimony, because other people see it as legitimate authority. And so if we say, oh, God, those Christians, you know, they don't obey the authority, then that, you know, that damages our witness. Does that make sense? 
Whether, whether you agree with it or not, it's not, not the issue, but does it make sense? There's a difference between obedience and submission, and we should always be subject. There's no exception to that. You know, I just took a trip to New York this week, and when I was on the plane, they had, I was right before the plane, they handed out a sheet of paper, front and back, and I was going to have to write my name, I was going to have to write where I was from, who I was going to visit, and that I was going to, by signing it, because I was from California, one of the 19 states, I was, I was required to self-quarantine myself in that state for two weeks. And, you know, I'm thinking, I'm on the plane, I'm thinking, you know, what am I going to do here? Well, I figured that when I handed it in, and if they, I was just going to ask them, am I required to sign this in order to come into this state? And if they said yes, and I was just going to get on the plane and go home. But there was nobody there to collect the papers. Yeah, I see... <laughs> That, if it, com- if it comes from the government, that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So, and these drones, you know, that are G- tracking your GPS, people at the beach and so forth, that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So these are all violations of the Constitution which ma- governors and mayors don't have authority to do. To be clear, you're saying your position, your position is that in America, as Christians in this society, our ultimate civil authority is the Constitution. The ultimate... The ultimate civil authority for every American is the Constitution. Yeah. But our ultimate authority is God, who trumps the Constitution. So if the Constitution's opposed to God, which it isn't, might, well, it is in one place, um, then, then you obey God rather than, than man. I'm not familiar with that passage because I'm not as theologically adept as someone else, apparently. Uh, maybe somebody here can do so. I'd have to look it up. Um, you can email me. You know, you know my email address. Okay, so here's the seminary prof. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't running from civil authorities. Or he was running from the Jews. What would you say to the people who argue in relation to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence that calls Americans to abolish any form of government that becomes tyrannical? Well, the Constitution doesn't do that. No Constitution in the history of the world has ever been written that gives a way to destroy it. Um, that's the Declaration of Independence, and that is we're not under the Declaration of Independence. In fact, the United States didn't exist when the Declaration of Independence was written that's kind of why it was written, to get to the United States by fighting a revolution. So Declaration of Independence doesn't have any political authority in America. People believe in some of the concepts of it, um, and the, the, Constitution does, the Constitution provides a way for changing itself. It's called the amendment process. And so that the founders recognized that things would change over time, and so in their wisdom, they created a process for amending the Constitution, which unfortunately we choose not to do. We unfortunately allow nine people in black robes to just tell us what to do, but that's another whole discussion. So to flip it a bit, we're, we're appealing to the Constitution and the Church, right? But I've also heard this concept of a lesser magistrate, where the local authority can override a yeah. central authority and how that plays into this whole Yeah, interposition, lesser majors. All right, thank you for bringing that up in the question time because I didn't have time to deal with it. All right, 
So there's this really popular thing among people today, among people today, that there's such a thing as interposition or a lesser magistrate option, which is because all authorities have authority from God, not only does the king and parliament have authority from God, but so do the colonial authorities. And so you can choose, if the two of them are in opposition, you can choose which one you want to obey. So if the colonial authorities go against the king, then you can join them against the king, right? That's the basic argument. Um, And let me just first say, there's not a single patriot preacher who made that argument. I have friends who I argue with all the time on this uh, at other institutions and whatnot, and we write books and stuff. And they always bring up the, and I say, okay, just show me one example of a patriot preacher who made that argument, and they can't because there isn't one. So it wasn't an issue in the American Revolution. It was concocted largely in the 1980s, dredging up Theodore Beza's work, which I was thinking about writing an article for the journal on that. Um, But Theodore Beza was was a follower of Calvin, who's the one who actually put the stuff in that people blame Calvin, excuse me, credit Calvin with. Calvin has been slandered by people taking Beza's work and saying that was Calvin because he's a Calvinist. Beza came up with and concocted that thing. Um, and it's, it was a, Martin Luther addressed it specifically, and so did others. Everybody who's under an authority is not, to that extent, a ruler. They are a subject. Okay? So a governor in America is a ruler over his people, to use the term loosely, but he's not a ruler over another state or the nation. He's a, he's a subject to that extent. So a king is the old... That's why in First Peter 2, Peter says, whether to the king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, meaning they're under his authority, they, they don't have, in that sense, uh, independent authority. They, anybody below the authority is a subject. That's why Paul says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Everybody below the top dog is a subject. They, yes, they are an authority over somebody lower than them, but they are a subject. Does that make sense? And that's the, that's the problem with that issue, aside from the fact that it would still be wrong, as Martin Luther points out, it would still be wrong for those authorities to rebel against a higher authority because it's still rebellion. So... <clears throat> The one thing that's really difficult and interesting when it comes to subjection of authority is when there's a transition between authorities. And um, I've worked on it for 35 years now, and I don't have a good answer. That's where I believe Christian liberty comes in. Um, Meaning, Christian liberty, meaning not you just do whatever you want. It means you study the word, you pray, you ask God to guide you and then you make what you believe is the right decision. Um, when there's a transition of authority, that's a tough call. When, does, when, does, when do you go from this to this? It's a tough call. The Bible doesn't answer that question as far as I can tell. And so I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why you'd be concerned about police, but... 
Well, wait, wait. Let me. Well, within his province. The God, the Constitution is not ordained by God. God ordains civil authority, which is people. Which will even bind that in this nation as the supreme law of Yeah, but he didn't write the Constitution. No, he didn't. Okay, go ahead. But the Constitution is the supreme law that. Yes. Yes. So if there were a conflict between obeying human superior or the Constitution, being faithful to the Constitution, there's three possibilities as it relates to 1 Peter 2.13. You submit to human authority, or you submit to the Constitution, or the third option is Christian liberty. What would be your position? If um, I choose between submitting to a human authority that is giving me an unlawful, unconstitutional order? Yeah. I know, I know and, and you're not going to like my answer, but I've dealt with this a number of times before. The key to the whole, this whole question is the Constitution is not self-interpreting. The Constitution is not self-interpreting. The Constitution has to be interpreted by human beings. And what Paul is talking about here, when he's talking about human institutions and uh, being subject to authority, is to human beings who are ruling, human beings who are magistrates, etc. So my answer is you submit to the human beings, and then you try to get them to adhere to the Constitution. You go through whatever processes you have, like the court system or whatever, or, or, or or elections, and so forth, to get them to adhere to the Constitution. But you can't just say, you can say it, but I don't think it's valid, that I'm going to be subject to this abstraction, the Constitution. Because even though it's written in words, it's an abstraction. For example, uh, you take the Fourth Amendment, reasonable search and seizure. What does reasonable mean? It's not self... Pardon? So the courts did it. That's human beings interpreted it. That's what I'm saying. The Constitution is not self-interpreting. And so... So given a choice between... Between... Road makes the road. I have an order to violate a constitutionally-protected right. Do I submit to the human superior that's ordered me to violate that constitutional right as interpreted by the, by the courts? Yes. Or do I submit to... Do I submit to the Constitution with a rule you submit to the authority, but you don't necessarily obey them. See, that's back to the difference between submission and obedience, which is critical. Even in the military, in the United States military, military uh, personnel are, are sworn to the Constitution and so forth, and they are, given the, they are told not to disobey an unlawful order, right? So, you shall disobey an unlawful order. Right. So you disobey, but you don't then frag your officer. You, you still are subject, you take the punishment then if you disobey. You go, to, you go to court and they tell you whether you were right to do it or not. That's the critical thing. You have to disobey maybe, or you think you have to disobey, but you never, you are never to not be subject. Let every person be in subjection to the authorities. There's no authority except from God. He's talking about Nero here. 
So subjection is absolute. There's no exception. Obedience, there is an exception. And that's why the the distinction between those is so critical. And so even if you think that they're violating the Constitution or so forth, you might disobey then, but you cannot give up subjection. You can't raise a force and overthrow them, etc. It's a weird question, but if you take the the rebellion against uh, uh, England at the time, you put that aside today personally. Are you glad it happened? I mean, are you glad okay. it Okay. Remember what I said at the beginning? I feel very blessed to have been born in and live in the United States. I believe it's the greatest and best country on human history. I would not want to live in any other country on earth. But the end does not justify the means. God uses, as Calvin calls it, the instrumentality of the wicked. Uh, uh, Jesus came to die on the cross. Does that justify Judas... Betrayal? No, it's something that God used to get there, but God turns it to his good. It's Genesis 50-20, when Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So God uses sinful acts by men to accomplish his purposes, etc. And so the fact that the United States, in my humble opinion, the greatest country in history came out of the American Revolution doesn't make the American Revolution right. It just means God used it to create a great country. What have happened without violence? Oh, absolutely. Look at all the other... There, how many countries of the British Commonwealth are now not under British rule that never rebelled? Like Canada, for example. We don't have to go very far to look for one. You didn't... And, they, and one of the other problems with the revolution is the Americans never gave in on one point. They never negotiated. The British Parliament got rid of the Stamp Act when they protested. They got rid of the Townsend Acts when they protested. They, they, they bent over backwards, and the Americans never gave an inch. They never tried to conciliate at all, which is another major problem. But who's to say two years later the British wouldn't have said, okay, you can go free, or maybe 50 years later, or whatever. It doesn't matter, because it, it, you don't have a right to have a separate country anyway, but that's another issue. Yeah, we, we have to get into legal technicalities there, but let me just say, I disagree with the Ninth Circuit's reasoning, um, but it was more of, there was, this Supreme Court, as they've done three times in the last two weeks, is very good at making technical decisions that don't really address the overall issue. And that's what, they, that's what the Ninth Circuit did here. They, they made a technical decision that doesn't really address the issue as a whole. Like I said, we'll be done at 10.